Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. I think the future is going to require us to be in more multidisciplinary teams moving forward. Like who's at the table really matters. So if, if we sort of understand that, we should understand the role that at least design plays in the puzzle. Whether you're designer or non-designer, like you should understand the puzzle of what makes something multidisciplinary. Hi, I'm Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders. My guests include notable folks from all walks of life, martial arts grandmasters, military leaders, high-powered CEOs, and survivors, all sorts of folks. In each episode, I distill the remarkable experience of that guest into actionable insights that help you create your most compassionate and courageous life ever. Today, I'm going to be talking about the power of design and innovation and how it can help us face the challenges that we have today. And my guest is Kevin Bethune, a designer, entrepreneur, author of Reimagining Design, and the founder and chief creative officer of Dreams Design Plus Life. Formerly with Nike in the global footwear product area, working on Air Jordan as one of the design team members, later at Boston Consulting Group running the BCG Digital Ventures, an innovation lab, which then he spun out into his own work at Dreams Design Plus Life. Here's Kevin. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon on a Friday afternoon. So stoked to meet you. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. I loved reading about your background. I've got a ton to talk about. I mean, top designer over at Nike. I mean, geez. We did some work with Nike. A very few number of their executives came and went to our SealFit training a few years ago. And then Nike had organized some work with um, top uh, high school football teams. And we did something with them out in um, Green Bay Packers Stadium a few years ago. It was like eight or 10 years ago. It was, it was great fun. And I remember being up on the Nike campus and, and getting like a thousand or two thousand dollar credit in your nike store up there and i came home like loaded to the gills with all this great stuff (laughs) anyway so the show isn't about nike but i do want to get into kind of that experience and design you had there and really what shaped you to get into thinking about reimagining design but give us a sense of for like what shaped you as a human being you know where did you grow up what were your parents like what were some of the influences that kind of shaped the clay of your mind and heart and spirit to be who you are today I was born technically in Newburgh, New York, but I spent the majority of my childhood in the Detroit metropolitan area, right in the heart of American auto. Most of the neighbors, as I remember, were technicians working in factories or engineers or business folks working for the American automotive brands. Was your father in the industry or how did you end up there? Actually, no. Um, so my father worked in retail. So he was a you know, master merchandiser for large department stores, brands like JCPenney. And my mom had worked in banking, banking retail, but also had experience starting her own business and was just a great mom to the family, to the household. My parents originated from the South, both sides, descendants from previous generations of slavery. And, really? Okay. You know, definitely the stories of you know, some of the egregious assaults on their humanity. I bet. <laughs> in the book, I, I talk about my mom, like before she was even two, like they, she was one of 10 kids on, on her side. and. When they arrived home on Sunday morning from church, they met their home, you know, it was literally burning embers. Their home had, had been burned to the ground oh, from no. supremacist aggression and also institutional stuff in terms of like the forces that be wanting to put a highway through the neighborhood. And so the intimidation of those who owned land, especially within those black neighborhoods, 
that was sort of the product of like what my parents came from and what they came out of. And they, they migrated north and that's when they had us kids. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's fascinating. And it's really interesting how that's epigenetically as well as through the stories and the behaviors shaped you as a human, right? And what do you think some of the positive aspects of that, or, or maybe even the not so positive, what, how did that affect you in your formative years and how you grew up, your view of reality and the stories that you told yourself? <laughs> yeah, it definitely had an influence. I can say, you know, again, I, I feel privileged that I grew up in a home with a you know, hardworking mother and father and held the family unit tight. I was one of three kids. And they created an atmosphere of creativity, also leaning into who we were as people, just having us kids believe that anything was possible for our life, despite the obstacles, despite perhaps the resistance that society may sort of throw our way, that life is not always fair and that, you know, you're going to encounter people that may not like you for a wide variety of reasons, but you still got to be who you are. You still got to know where you come from. You got to be proud of that, have some pride and dignity in who you are and, and lean forward in life, follow those curiosities and work hard be consistent, be disciplined, and anything can happen for you. And just just know that. I love that story. I love that hearing that coming from a, a successful individual like you, because, you know, the narrative can be so disjointed, you know, in the media and the news and, you know, this big kind of war of critical race theory. And, you know, it's really kind of a mess. And uh, unfortunately, people get really contracted in trying to have a conversation about it. I'm exposed to that a little bit more now. I finally re-engaged to finish a doctorate program at Pepperdine. And, and most of the people in my class are persons of color and intersectional. You know, the, I'm learning all these terms that I never really knew about as a white guy. And it's fascinating. And it's really developed a lot of sensitivity to the experience that you're talking about, you know, that I didn't share. You know what I mean? And so it's like really interesting to me. I'm curious, since we're on the subject, like how was your experience in the professional world and, and maybe even to this day that could be different than mine? Just help people understand like how, how you had to show up as a professional as a black uh, professional versus the not, like I, if I was in the same role, how I would have to show up. It started probably in college as well as, you know, that, that, that first job out of college where, again, like there may have been some initial resistance because I, I did felt like by identity, by sheer identity, I'm, I'm feeling like the other in the room, by background, by language, by... By the number of people. <laughs> by the number of people. Like I'm, I'm definitely one of few here, you know. And in terms of like how maybe I was either understood or misunderstood, I, I, I felt some winds of resistance, but I also felt fair winds of encouragement. Like there were, you know, people of all race, creeds, belief systems coming out to support. You know, I appreciate those advocates, those mentors, those encouragers. But, you know, you always had, you know, some resistors and you just sometimes wondered like, why, why the resistance? Just trying to learn the work, trying to do the work, just like everybody. Uh, where is that coming from? And I think it was just, always being aware of the thought process of, okay, now I'm being forced to question this person's behavior. Where is that coming from? If it's about honest like deficiencies in what I'm doing in the work, we can have a conversation all day on constructive critique. I'll, I'll welcome that all day. But when I, you're forcing me to go to this, like, what is it, passive aggressiveness? Is it subjective? I'm not your favorite because of my identity. Is it bias? Is it, is it racism? Like having to constantly question that based on what's happening around me or making sure that I'm Spending energy and hindsight being twenty twenty, it was almost like unproductive energy. Making others feel comfortable with my presence. Right, you're working overtime. Like you, you have like a twenty percent tax or so on your time and your mental energy to just try to make sure that you're not the cause of that. I guess you could say. 
That's fascinating. Exactly. So let's talk about just your interest in design. It's not something that I really have any familiarity with, like how a mind like yours thinks that can design something completely new that didn't exist before. Where did that come from? And, and how did you kind of foster that? You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, sort of the prestige at Nike and, and having worked in design. But it's funny, um, my career didn't start in design. I could say that I, I drew as any child would, like for hobby. You just love drawing? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Loved it. I drew everything. That was the way that I broke down the world, what I was observing. My parents encouraged it. But any notion of design, it felt under the abstraction of art. And with, with as much sacrifice as my parents were putting into sending us kids. Yeah, you weren't going to go into art, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. That's a bias too, right? <laughs> in, in that way, as I could say, in that way, as I, I'm guilty of that same bias, right? I, I had this preconceived notion of what could get you a good job. And because I liked engineering and all that, I, I started there and had a great first chapter of career. But fast forward when you know I, I pursued an MBA to add the business layer to my tech background, and then I ended up at Nike of all places. I started at Nike in a business planning capacity, but the, the product person within was like, okay, where's the product folks at Nike? How can I meet them? And then the collegial culture that Nike is, and you've seen the campus, like a coffee chat is no problem there, and someone will kick you to two more people to have coffee with. And sure enough, I met some product folks that eventually said, you know what, why don't you why don't you try your hand at a side hustle stretch assignment? Just show what you can do and show us and and we'll see. And Oh, that's cool. So you actually had a, an, a side hustle assignment. They said, okay, go design this thing. Was it a shoe or what was that first project? It's funny. I, again, coming from business planning, there was an innovation group that said, eh, you know, help us out, help us with some of the numbers. We don't have a numbers guy here. Can you help us out with that? And I started peering in and offering that support. And then eventually I was afforded a, a chance to interview for an operational job within Global Footwear. So that got me closer to product. And that was the first time that I saw real professional designers in the first time in my career. And I leaned into them meeting friends, creative friends. And, and because of my engineering volition, and I had some comfort with 3D stuff, I was like, oh, let me, let me latch on. And some of my newfound creative friends actually gave me opportunities to stretch myself. So that's how I I started finding design in the Nike environment was getting just some runway to try some things. And the Jordan brand was the first category. A man by the name of Dwayne Edwards, who was the footwear design director at the time, had too many briefs, not enough designers. He said, you meet me in the morning at six. We'll commiserate on this project. I'll mentor you through it, but you got to do the work. And then we would go do our day jobs. And then I would work on his stuff at night. Oh, wow. That's (laughs) great. So we did that for a better part of a year, working double duty. And, uh, you know, Jordan Brand mentored me through getting two different models to market. They invited me into through their entire process. Those shoes did really well that year, and that led to other open doors. But it's funny, you know, I might get credit for some design work at Nike, but I wasn't officially ever a designer at Nike. Ah, interesting. That's cool. I imagine it's just an intense collaboration of teamwork, right? So, like, what does the teamwork look like to get a new Jordan shoe from concept out to the market? Yeah, there's sort of this um, sort of implicit triad model that's wired throughout the product engine of Nike or any competitive brand for that matter too, where a designer will come to the table, a product marketer or manager will come to the table to speak on behalf of the market landscape, the business, the distribution, merchandising channels. And then you have the footwear developer or engineer that knows what it's like to commiserate, collaborate with the factory downstream and can kind of anticipate what the factory has to deal with in terms of materials and methods of making. And so those three voices have to be at the table and they got to nurse the idea. And it might be just a sketch to like, eventually we'll get some samples from the factory and 
Eventually, there might be you know a real like thing that you want to actually mass produce, but it's got to survive gates and dates through a long process because it's not just the shoe itself; it's how that shoe sits on a on a store environment, you know, next to a wall full of shoes. All these gates and dates, all these filters, all these decisions. It's like eighteen to twenty four months before. <laughs> was Michael Jordan involved at all? Did he have veto power over the designs, or what, what was his relationship? <laughs> was it just strictly financial? <laughs> I uh, don't know the nature of that relationship now. But when I was an employee, he was officially a president by title, and he was part of the business. Oh, really? Wow. He had a special title, and he had veto rights in terms of how the brand was used. That's what I remember when I was working there. Interesting. Well, it makes sense. It's his name, after all. Indeed. Okay, so what's your proudest accomplishment and you know, or the project that you feel like you had the biggest influence on? It was more like first a career gamble that led to like what I'm really known for from a design angle. And as the first was, as I mentioned, I, I never earned the title officially of designer, even though I got design work through the hopper. I encountered a fork in the road where one, I could have continued to claw and scratch another ten to fifteen years on side hustles before Nike would pedigree me as a, as a rock star footwear designer. Or meanwhile, the world is like changing all around outside of Nike, like, you know, designs being celebrated on the cover of business magazines. We're seeing the advent of digital and physical ecologies like Apple coming to life, the iPod, the iTunes, all, the, all these ecologies of experience. And I saw a little bit of myself in that convergence. A, a few shoe projects w- weren't going to answer the creative leg of my three-legged stool at that point. Mm-hmm. It was rather right. short. So <laughs> I decided to quit my Nike job and go back to school. I went back to grad school for a second time. Oh, wow. To really okay. solidify my creative foundation properly while not leaving behind my tech and business backgrounds. It was a move to really stand for the intersection of these converging disciplines coming together and that I would stand for innovation from the rest of my career, like and work on innovation projects the way I wanted to. I hitched my wagon to some business partners that thought the same and had the same belief system about where the future was going and ended up standing up some runways. And the last of which was creating this incubator that was acquired by the Boston Consulting Group. And they really supercharged it where the big BCG animal is a consulting engine, but inside of them, there's actually a venture creation engine, it's an incubator that spins out companies, that creates and spins out companies. Oh, that's cool. And I got to lead the design leg of that three-legged stool for that incubator, which was such an honor to be a part of that. That sounds like a blast. <laughs> Any notable projects come out of there in terms of companies? Oh, I mean, one of my favorite ventures was uh, Bosch Engineering coming to our Berlin Innovation Center. And we again, we worked the inverse. We weren't on airplanes flying like consultants do. We had innovation centers. They came to you, yeah. And they lived in residence with us. So we got to ring fence designers, technologists, strategists, and the Bosch folks lived in residence at that Berlin studio, and they trusted our process. They went on an innovation journey, and they incubated uh, an e-scooter ride-sharing platform where they deployed thousands of scooters across these megacities in Europe. People could just kind of check them out with their phones. You didn't need anything more than a driver's license to ride them. It was almost like early before the advent of all the scooters that we saw a few years ago. This was an early venture that really sparked and made traction in Europe in a good way. And that was Bosch coming to us with just a question around mobility, help us with mobility. So these businesses were real. This went well beyond the PowerPoint deck, if you will. (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. 
I'm passionate about leadership and I'm getting my doctorate in global leadership and change. What, what were some of the, the big insights you had around what successful leadership looked like at an entrepreneurial level to, you know, for these, especially for a company that is a big, stable, secure company trying to be entrepreneurial, like we were talking about with Bosch or someone who would come to an innovation lab or some of the leadership principles that help them be successful? You know, I honestly think it took some initial pilots to bring disparate disciplines and different representatives from those disciplines into the same war room together. We've come to find pretty quickly that even though folks are familiar with the Venn diagram showing how disciplines can come together and collaborate, in reality, it's still the exception, not the rule. And I found in those initial convenings of teams, people were tripping all over each other or they were getting hung up on someone else, perhaps in, in the room had a, a bias toward uh, hypothesis-driven problem solving. And they wanted to ram an answer down the throat of the, <laughs> the team and the process until proven otherwise, until you get convinced me that this answer is wrong. I'm going to keep driving it. So you had that kind of personality. You had others in the room coming from different disciplines that might have had a more in, abductive or inductive sort of thought process. Mm -hmm. And maybe they were feeling marginalized or uh, not you know, listened to. And at the same time, they had to develop the confidence and courage to speak up. Maybe when maybe they haven't had to in previous patterns of collaboration. So we were forcing everyone's hand to do things differently. And it's funny, I think from a leadership perspective, just the first act of getting the teams to just openly talk about it. Like, where are you coming from? Where are you coming from? How do you like to work? How do I like to work? You know, what stresses me out? What are my triggers? What are your triggers? Right. To talk about the process instead of the actual, just doing the work all the time. So working on themselves, working on the idea of being a collaborative team, while you also have to keep the project moving forward. That's right. Exactly. Were you embedded or were you a facilitator in those environments? You know, through our first few ventures where we were just sort of proving the model, proving how we could build these businesses and the solutions within them. I was embedded, you know, definitely a, a co-founder of the initial ventures I was a part of. My charter was to represent design. But as we started to scale the platform, I had to move into more of a, what I call a servant leadership functional role to ensure that if we're replicating designers, like the volition I was providing, we have to find more designers that are going to come into these ventures and have the courage to contribute as well and hopefully do it better than I was doing it in the initial outset. But my charter was to then serve that cohort of designers as they were seeded into each of the ventures as, as the whole platform was scaling. Well, I love that you mentioned servant leadership. You know, that's been a popular kind of leadership model or theory. One of the criticisms is that often, you know, with a, you know, someone who adopts servant leadership as kind of a, a leadership mindset is that they end up giving all of their time, energy, all of themselves in service to their team, and then they end up getting burned out. <laughs> How did you deal with that? And how did you avoid burnout or, or did you? What was your experience like? I think to your point, like I, I definitely didn't coin the term servant leadership. And in the book, I talk about this other extreme of gatekeeping, but I at least had a wherewithal to know like, okay, there's a gradient here and I want to try to bias my time toward the servant end, the service end. You know, I think I tried to tactically break it down and unpack like the key lessons learned that I, that I learned through my previous career experiences. You know, if I'm charged to be a leader of any team, I got to make sure that they trust me first or that there's trust established within the team. Just picking an inventory of the ingredients where we can be in service to each other. If there's a vision that I need to articulate as that team's leader, I need to ensure that that team feels bought in, that they've helped inform the vision, even though I might have to articulate it and provide a oomph of clarity to that vision. 
But I do want to like carve up the work that needs to be done and give people the runway, the, the role clarity, the license to own pieces of that collective vision. But I also think that it wasn't about me just carrying forward as a facilitator to constantly serve and unblock the team. Sometimes the team needed to see me do the work too. Right. There were many moments where there was just an ability to provide quiet leadership to come into some gnarly situation that the team was uncomfortable with, get my hands dirty with them, show them perhaps like how I would attack it. Those moments sort of brokered better trust where, you know, the need to unblock or the need to do things for them sort of lessened where they, they were off and running at that point. We deployed that in the SEALs as officers because we had to go through our, we went through our basic underwater demolition SEAL training side by side with all the, you know, all the enlisted troops. And, you know, it's a small community, 2000 strong, maybe three, 400 officers. And so we didn't have an us versus them or I'm above you attitude because we trained side by side and we had to know and be able to do everything reasonably well. Whereas we also knew that these guys are going to be drilling in to become experts at, you know, certain things. And so you could never, you know, you don't want to, you could be good, but you're probably never going to be the best at any one thing. The leadership was really nuanced like that. And so you had to do a lot of show and tell, you know, you had to prove that you could do something, lead by example, walk the talk, that kind of thing. But then for an equal amount of time, you had to get out of the way and not be the boss, let them flourish, you know, both so they could learn, but also because they were the, they were the experts, you know, ultimately. That's fascinating. Wow. So we, one of our mottos was ready to lead, ready to follow and never quit. Right. And so that meant, you know, you might be leading one moment, but guess what? The next moment you might be following and serving and, you know, love that. And so we're always switching roles. And it sounds like you kind of experienced that in that innovative environment. Yeah. For those multidisciplinary teams to thrive, we had to orchestrate that just as you're describing it. it, it that resonates as you describe it. It resonates in terms of how I saw teaming work within teams, at least that were successful or found success. The title of your book was Reimagining Design. And it sounds like really it's about innovation. So what can you tell us about innovation that maybe would be a unique perspective? I think like every organization arguably wants to be innovative. Right. It's a critical skill nowadays because you have to reinvent yourself constantly. The world's moving so fast, you know, this exponential age that we're in and all. <laughs> totally. <it's, laughs> yeah, I think, I think every organization has to think about like what does growth mean for them? To your point, like there might be parts of the business that are maturing or like, sort of out of date and they need to be refreshed, renewed, rejuvenated. So we're going to find that new source of business growth. And hopefully, we hope it's respectful growth that's considerate of the environment, considerate of people that are part of the engine, all these things. Well, that's also being kind of required by all the stakeholders, right? Isn't it nowadays, both boards, you know, ESG movements, SEC, if it's an American company or whoever the European equivalent is, and also employees. And so I think it's just the days of putting out work that's going to be harmful for the environment or not good for the global commons is over. Totally. But if we look at like who's at the strategy table informing these opportunities, arguably from a discipline perspective, it, it still may be predominantly biased toward the sort of the business line of thinking. Or and maybe if you look at Silicon Valley, technologists have asserted their voice through computer science, the, the rise of software. So you could argue they're another dominant voice at the strategy table. Design is young at that table. To your point, like around the greater ecological ramifications of any business or design decision, design better have a seat at that table and be sort of meshed into the problem-solving culture of what's happening and what's prioritized and what's driven forward at that strategy table. The book is less about talking about design thinking some more or anything. It's more about design strategic positioning at parity with those other disciplines. 
Yeah, no, I get that. That's cool, which is a whole new level. And I imagine, you know, like companies like Apple, which really led with kind of saying, okay, design isn't just something that's happening in this back room over here. It is the brand, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's got a table, you know, front seat equal, right? And so that's probably now the norm. Since I invoked the book, like what was some of the key messaging that you have in the book that, you know, you, you'd like to share to the, the listeners right now? I think the first thing is someone might look at the cover and say, like, is this just about design? But honestly, I think it, it's applicable to designers and non-designers in that I think the future is going to require us to be in more multidisciplinary teams moving forward. Like who's at the table really matters. So if we sort of understand that, we should understand the role that at least design plays in the puzzle. Whether you're designer or non-designer, like you should understand the puzzle of what makes something multidisciplinary. And then secondly, this is not just another book that adds to design thinking canon or uh, minds the intersection of design and business. It's just really trying to articulate how can we collectively problem solve? And I, and I want to bring my person into the book and just tell you, like, here's a series of lived experiences that I've had. I can showcase how design has absolutely changed my life as an individual. And then through that, I've also been privileged to be a part of organizations where I watch design change the organization for the better. And the perspectives I share are lightweight enough where individuals as well as organizations can pick them up, customize for their own realities, and move them forward. You know, what's going through my mind right now is this book is probably initially oriented toward like larger organizational leaders, but it sounds like anybody who is interested in how to, you know, improve just their thinking about collaboration and innovation in their own lives, right? Because we're moving toward like solopreneurship, people having, you know, being on independent, multiple independent teams as ICs, sometimes in and out of employment roles at large organizations. So how is it going to help someone who may be uh, in that kind of vein, more of an independent operator? Yeah, no, I think with any of those examples you mentioned, we're talking about creatively curious people who are aware that the world is changing and even the ground might be shifting underneath their feet and they're nervous. You know, If anything, I don't claim that the book is some magic pill, but I think through the unpacking of these personal and professional stories, folks will hopefully get inspired and find some like guideposts of inspiration to help them string together how they can use the best of their life personally and professionally, how they can use the best nutrients to guide their, their own path forward in a changing world. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. We talked briefly before we started about kind of your vision for the future beyond, you know, design, just as a human being. And your experience, my experience has been like so rich with positive things, right? Great success and lots of challenge along the way, right? But, you know, we've cultivated this attitude that it's beneficial to be positive and not negative. It's helpful to be a compassionate person. And then you recognize that, wow, these are universal principles that everybody should at least stumble upon and try to adopt. But then the, you look outside and you read the news and you're like, wow, what a shit show. Like, why is that from your perspective? <laughs> yeah. You know, honestly, I think when it comes to problem solving, I'm a big believer in the butterfly effect. Like this book is not going to answer the Russian invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> right. No. <laughs> it's not going to solve. Neither is this podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> but 
you know, I, I, unfortunately, I think we, we do live in a world that has been, it's funny, we say it often, like we live in a world that's been informed by design. The enterprises that we were for, the institutions we navigate are the way they are by design. So no longer is it enough to just even think about innovation through the lens of like desirability, viability, feasibility, these kind of things that we talk about innovation. That's no longer enough. We have to think about the broader ecology of what we affect. It could be environment, it could be our people, it could be ethics, but that's no longer enough. Because the world has been informed by design, we do have to wrestle with notions of power, privilege, inequitable access, you know, all these things. And perhaps as much as we think about future and innovation, we also need to like be present in the moment and we also need to bring historical relevance into the conversation and actually provide visibility to the threads of systemic inequity. I think that's part of any problem solving journey. We should appreciate where we've come from and be honest about that history. With that last point, because we did address this kind of early on, to address systemic inequity, do you believe, like some of the deconstructionists, that we kind of have to deconstruct what's been built, you know, that's kind of trapped the inequity? Or can we, through more intelligent design, evolve institutions and culture to be uh, more inclusive? Because they're radically different approaches, right? Totally. <laughs> One will lead to kind of more chaos. And, you <laughs> you know, know, like throwing the baby out the bathwater is probably not always right, you know. Right. Unfortunately, with a lot of these conversations as it relates to, you know, what we see in the media, politics, governments, even enterprises and institutions, I could also say that some of the, the maneuvers haven't been bold enough to really like offset the precedent of inequity. Right, which has got a lot of momentum and a lot of rigidity, right? The structures are pretty rigid and sometimes they're hidden from view. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, you know, in the summer of George Floyd, like, and again, these stories were not new to the black community for, and I'm speaking as a black man right. in America. Unfortunately, it takes black bodies falling victim to police brutality for companies to wake up and start, but still the behaviors are very performative, very surface level. Yeah, they're PR tricks. So sense. You know, so yeah. to your question, I think a strategy, don't throw everything away, don't deconstruct everything, but like, can we come up with bold tactics over time that will help get us to a new direction and be bolder than we have been? That's my hope, at least. It seems to me that probably one of the best ways for, I mean, this is all human beings, right? Human beings create structures, create organizations. And then we tend to think it's the organization that's the problem. No, it's the human beings still, you know, long after the original people constructed the organization, right? That system. And to me, like, it seems so simple, like learning how to communicate again as peers, kind of like what you're doing with these entrepreneurs or these people coming from different departments. You need, we need people coming from different walks of life who have joined a common mission and in communities to just come together and start communicating and sharing in going beyond, you know, like I love Ken Wilbur and Integral Theories as post-liberal, post-conservative conversations or integrated conversations where everyone's voice is included and heard and, and difficult conversations are addressed. And it takes probably uh, facilitation and expertise, but even that person, whoever those people are, have to be very, very post-rigid, kind of left-right, this, that. We can get there, but the story can't happen by one side pointing fingers at the other or vice versa. You know what I mean? Let's get together. We're humans first, right? Yes. And now let's look at our differences and celebrate them. Yeah, I agree. There, there's a, a buried assumption around like, it's going to be a zero-sum game. Well, no. If we do what you're describing, like we actually can flourish and create more opportunities for everyone. It's like the idea of abundance versus scarcity. You know, everyone 
trying to, you know, claw for the last pie is no, let's open up the borders of the pie and make it limitless. Where can people learn more about you and your book? And like, where's a great place for them to kind of come if they're sitting in the car and driving and they want to remember, hey, I want to go check this out. I'm pretty easy to find um, just at Kevin Bethune and all the major social media platforms. My author site is just my name, Kevin Bethune hyphen reimaginingdesign.com. And there's all kinds of doorways in terms of like ways to engage the book or ways to get over to the business side of what defines my my experience over at Dreams Design and Life. Uh, that's another website people can go to just understand a little bit more. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me today. It's really very fascinating conversation and I appreciate you for doing your work and also for standing up for what's right in the world in terms of where we need to go as leaders. Thank you, Mark. Honored by your story and all the incredible things that you've done. And it's been an honor to be in conversation with you, honestly. Ditto. And uh, I'll see you on Nike campus when we go visit and <laughs> go get some freebies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, brother. Thank you so much. All right. Thank take you. care. You too. That was a fascinating interview. I haven't talked to a business leader like that who's really into design and innovation and creativity and collaboration. We had a fascinating talk about servant leadership and a gatekeeping leadership and how how design has become as important as strategic planning and finance and everything else when it comes to launching a business. All these principles can be applied to your life if you're a solopreneur or an independent contractor. It was really very interesting conversation. Show notes and transcripts are up on the site at markdevine.com. You can find the video at YouTube on our YouTube channel. You can find me at Twitter at markdevine and on Instagram and Facebook at realmarkdevine. You can hit me up on LinkedIn, send me questions for our Q&A podcast if you like. Also, if you're not on my newsletter email list, you might be interested in our new newsletter called Divine Inspiration where I disseminate my most top of mind inspirational habits, uh, people, products, things that I'm thinking about, all that will help you lead a life of compassion and courage. Go to markdevine.com to subscribe if you're not part of that. Special shout out to my amazing team, Jeff Haskell, Jason Sanderson, Jeff Torres, and Melinda Hersey, who help produce this amazing show every week, bringing guests like Kevin to us. Also, it's very helpful if you review uh, the show. It helps other people find it. It gives us credibility. My goal is to get over 5,000 five-star reviews. This year, we have well over 1,000. If you like the show, then maybe take a moment to go rate it and review it at iTunes or wherever you listen. As we talk about in this episode and all of my episodes, the world is changing. We're getting exponentially disrupted. We have to develop the mindset of an exponential mind to be more innovative, more creative, hold on to our human skills, while everything else gets outsourced and disrupted. And we're going to have to do that through training, training the mind, training the body, training the spirit, becoming whole and more inclusive. So thank you for being part of our journey and for doing your part in that mission. Until next time, this is Mark Devine, the host of the Mark Devine Show. Hoo-yah.